0: You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. I want to begin this morning with a a brief financial update from the month of November since that month is behind us. And so, uh, as you'll see on the slide here, uh, we were ahead of budget in our giving in November, and so that's good news, and God has been gracious, and we've been generous together, and so that's exciting. As we head into the month of December then, I want to encourage you in this season when we are generous with others, let's continue to be generous toward the Lord financially. And uh, as we think about the end of the year and end of year giving and those kinds of things, continue to honor the Lord and let's finish the year strong. Uh, God has blessed us and gifted us this year. It's been a a stable year for us financially and that's reason to celebrate. Um, Speaking of money, I wanted to tell you a story this morning that um, kind of has to do with Money. It was the summer of 1995, and some friends of mine and I were getting ready to live for the summer in the city of Volgograd, Russia. Uh, It was a missions project, a, a, a chance to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and be about the work of sowing seeds of gospel renewal in that place. The city was formerly known as Stalingrad, and as you know, no one wants their city named after a ruthless dictator, so they changed the name to Volgograd. Because it was on the Volga River, I think that was actually just a changing back to what it was before Stalin renamed it after himself, as dictators are prone to do. But anyway, the the night before we were to leave on this journey, uh, our team leader came into our hotel room, gathered my buddies and I around, and and threw $20,000 in U.S. cash on the bed. And he said, gentlemen, take a wad of cash, put it on your person, we're carrying all this money with us into Russia, and it can't all be with one person. So I literally took $4,000, put it in one of those body wallets that you wear under your clothes, and wore that cash through the city of Moscow and customs and on the train all the way to Volgograd, Russia, where then we reconvened and counted it up to make sure it was all still there. Why? Why did we go through that particular exercise? Well, remember, I said this is 1995, and if you know your history, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. So we're six years post-communist Russia, and the cultural and financial systems in Russia had not yet acclimated to the fall of communism. And so what that meant was that at that time, and likely still today, the Russian ruble was a highly volatile currency. There was no guarantee that what 20,000 U.S. dollars bought at the beginning of of the summer was going to be still the same at the end of the summer. And so rather than transferring all our money into rubles for the entire summer, we chose to bring with us the U.S. dollar... Because on the streets of Volgograd, every merchant was happy to receive U.S. dollars. We were some of the most popular people in the city when it came to purchasing because the merchants understood the fluctuations in the Russian currency and they too preferred to be paid in U.S. dollars. And so we doled out that money measurably throughout the summer to take care of our physical needs. Why do I begin with that story this morning? Because I think the word love has suffered in our modern world a fate similar to the Russian ruble. Its currency has been devalued. It no longer carries the weight that it once did. And so I'm concerned because this morning our theme is love. We want to reflect together on the love of God, especially his love toward us in Christ in the coming of Jesus into the world during Advent. And the biggest problem we have in thinking about the love of God is importing our own understanding of love into the conversation. So we tend to think like this, here's what I think love is, here's what I've experienced of love, therefore God must be like this. We have a tendency to work backward from our experience and arrive therefore at our concept of God's love. It's no wonder that we sometimes are confused on exactly what the love of God is and how it functions. So rather than starting from our experience, let's start this morning from God's revelation. Because how God wants us to do theology is to start with who He is. To start with what He declares to be true about the world and then to let that color and reshape and interpret our experience. God has declared to us what his love is like in his word and in his son. And so we want to consider this morning what the prophet Isaiah has to say to us about the love of God. We'll be in Isaiah chapters 63, 64, and 65 this morning. And so I want to invite you to turn there. And I want to warn you as you turn there. Because the very beginning of this passage in Isaiah 63 is going to shock you. It's going to feel like whiplash. Whiplash. It's going to challenge your understanding of what love looks like. It is a shocking image, a strong description of God's vengeance and judgment. So, knowing that we are considering God's love, let's dive in and see what Isaiah has to say to us. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So, here in a sermon that is purported to be about God's love, we have five times in six version, verses, verses, that took me a long time to get that word out, six versions, verses, mention of God's wrath and God's anger. Notice the question Isaiah wants us to wrestle with who is this? Who is this figure striding splendidly in his apparel, righteous, mighty? The rest of Scripture answers this question for us. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John completes the picture for us in Revelation chapter 19 where he picks up on this exact image in Isaiah 63 and he introduces us to the Lord Jesus coming on a white horse. His eyes like a flame of fire. He's got a tattoo on his leg, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's wearing a... Robes spattered with blood. And it says he comes to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Revelation nineteen fifty. Well, I thought this was a sermon about love. It is. Here's the first thing Isaiah wants us to know about the love of God. God's love is holy. See, Isaiah wants to do away with our sentimentalized understanding of God's love. That God's love is sort of just a a Santa Claus-like love where where, where, he sort of sits in the sky and smiles placidly on everyone and there is no naughty list. Isaiah wants us to see that God's love is holy. That is, God loves what is good. God loves the right and the true and the just. And that means that God hates wickedness and evil, and unrighteousness. This love of God is a love that is committed to good, and beauty, and justice in the world, and that therefore deals seriously with evil, and wickedness, and injustice. This God and His love, this is not a, this is not a Lego movie kind of love, right? This is not an everything is awesome kind of love. This love makes distinctions. This love is ethically pure. God's love is holy. We see that even in our human experience of love, our love has this same element of fierceness to it, doesn't it? It's like if you just imagine going out in the parking lot after church. If I were to go out in the parking lot with my wife and kids in some uh. Some criminal, some thug were out there and he were to come and threaten the safety of my wife and children. My response wouldn't be, oh no, I love them. Don't do that. Right? My response would be, no, no, no. Got to get through me first. Now, he may not have a hard time getting through me, but that is not the point, right? The point is, Love has an element of fierceness to it. Because I love my family, I am fiercely opposed to those who would harm them. Isaiah is showing us that the nature of God's love is the same. God's love includes His hatred of evil and evildoers. God's love is holy and good. God is relentlessly committed in His love to ridding the world of every last particle of evil. God is committed to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's next week. Have you ever been deeply wronged? Have you ever been grievously sinned against? If you have, then you know that one of the emotions that you feel one of the longings that rises up in you is the longing for vengeance. The longing for those who harmed you to get what they deserve, to, to experience recompense. Every one of those movies that, that we sort of cheer at, right, is a movie of vengeance. People getting what's coming to them. That can go badly in a world of humans who are sinful. But that intrinsic longing, our intrinsic understanding that justice includes vengeance is rooted in our bearing the image of God. So take that intrinsic longing you have for people to pay for what they've done to you and think about this, you really have two options. Here's option number one. You live in a random accidental, purposeless universe. Guided by random chance, in which case there is no such thing as ultimate justice. And for all your longings that people experience justice, there's none to be had. That's one world you can live in. Or, option two, you live in a moral universe governed by a just and righteous God, in which case every wrong will be made right and every act of evil avenged. You want the second option. All of us want the second option. We want to live in a world where justice will be done. Only if there is a God who gets angry with sin, is there any hope of final justice? Otherwise, all of our longings for justice are merely illusions. Now, some of you here like me are critically minded and you have trouble reconciling God's anger with his kindness. Right? So a God who is kind and gracious and benevolent, we find it easy to embrace. A God who has wrath and anger, we find more challenging to embrace. And so I want to, for a moment, take a little detour and deal with that Tension. And, and to do that, to try to help resolve that tension, I want to borrow from the church father, Lactantius, who lived in about 300 A.D. Here's why. Here's why we're going to go back in time. Because the church fathers were brilliant thinkers. They were not into sound bites and Twitter and posturing. They were into substance. These were men who were schooled in plato and aristotle and classical philosophy in addition to the bible and so they have a way of piercing through the fog and helping us think clearly so let me introduce you to the argument of the church father lactantius as he reasons through the dilemma between god's kindness and god's anger here's the four options he says that exist for us as we think about this number one god is angry but not kind Number two, God is neither angry nor kind. Number three, God is only kind and never angry. Or number four, God has both anger and kindness. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Those are the options that are available to us. Let's think through them, Lactantius says. Option number one, the idea that God is angry but not kind, we can throw out right away. He says, this is neither reasonable nor credible. Here's why. Because if God were only angry, then there would need to be some other being from whom we derive goodness and kindness. And if there were such a being, what would we call it? God, right? He says, no one has a concept of God where God is only angry and not kind. So let's just throw that out and move on. Option two. Option two, that God is neither angry nor kind was the point of view held by the Epicureans. Epicurus taught that God is beyond passion. Passions are what cause human beings to be fickle and unpredictable. That's why we get angry and we sort of do unpredictable things. But you see, God, said Epicurus, is unmoved. God is beyond concern. God cares about nothing. God can't be provoked in any way. Lactantius says, if God is unmoved, if he can't be stirred up in any way, if he's always at rest, then what that means is that we have a God who never exerts his will. Because the only way you will something is if there's a desire, if something moves you to will that. And so what he says is, this God who is unmoved is the same as no God at all. Lactantius says, Epicurus keeps God in word, but removes him in reality. That's not a God. That's a nothing. A God who doesn't will, who doesn't act, who never engages, is the same as no God at all. Option three, that God is only kind and never angry, is the option of our day and age, isn't it? It was also the opinion of the Stoics. The Stoics said that anger arises from littleness of mind. I mean, someone annoys you and so you get angry. You get perturbed with someone and so you get angry. It's because you're small-minded. But God, you see, is great. God is vast. God is too great to be perturbed by anyone. And so God is always calm. God is always mild. God is always kind and never Angry. Sounds a lot like our day, right? All roads lead to God. God is just a big happy Santa Claus in the sky. Lactantius says, if that's the God you have, then what you have is a God who is unjust. Here's why. Let's assume you have two employees. One is diligent, faithful, excels in her work. One is lazy, undisciplined, slothful. If you treat those two employees the same way, you are unjust. Justice demands that good, virtue, be celebrated and honored and esteemed. And that a bad employee, someone who's lazy, undisciplined, selfish, be reprimanded, perhaps even fired. Justice demands that we make distinctions between good and evil. And therefore, justice demands that God, if he shows kindness toward the good, also shows anger toward evil. Therefore, Lactantius concludes, option four is correct. God has both anger and kindness. Here's how he expresses this. Some people are daring and wicked, neglecting the laws and even God himself. It is right that when God sees such things, he should be moved and arise to take vengeance upon the wicked so as to promote the interests of all good men. Thus, even in anger, there is also contained a showing of kindness. So the Epicureans, as many relativists in our day, tried to press the argument and say, well, Lactantius, if if it's true that God shows anger, if God does harm to anyone, then God is not good. If God, as Isaiah in chapter 63 says, expresses wrath toward people, that means he's not good. Here's Lactantius' answer. If the law is just which awards the transgressor his due, and if the judge is called upright and good when he punishes crimes, it follows that God, when he opposes the evil, is not injurious. Rather, the injurious person is he who spares an injurious person that he may injure many. The non-punishing of evil is evil. God, because He is just and righteous, displays in His creation both kindness and anger. Now, that was a long detour. But I think it's important to reason through our objections together so that we can embrace the goodness of God and understand more deeply His character. Because when we read Isaiah 63, 1-6 what ought to happen for us is that we bow in reverent fear. That we recognize the goodness, the truthfulness, the righteousness, the justice of God. And see that it is for the good, the eternal good of His people, that He deals with evil and sin and unrighteousness. And as we read Isaiah 63, we need to place it next to Romans chapter 5. Where the Apostle Paul tells us this, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul says, here's God demonstrating his love, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. You didn't go looking for God, God came looking for you. While you were still in rebellion, God sent His Son to die for you. And that is a demonstration of His love, because through the blood of Christ, you're delivered from the wrath of God. Are you amazed by the love of Christ? Are you captivated by the depth of God's love for His people? If not, may I suggest that perhaps the reason is because you have a flawed view of justice. If you understand justice, if you long for final justice in the world, then you also embrace a God who distinguishes between good and evil. And if you know your own heart, you know that you, because you have done evil, need to be justified. Need to be made right. Need to be delivered from the consequences of your own unrighteousness. And hence you need the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first point Isaiah wants to make about God's love is that God's love is holy. He wants us to see that God does not have some mushy sentimental love, but rather a love that is committed to the good of the world and the good of his people. And that means dealing seriously with evil. Here's point two. God's love is steadfast. God's love is steadfast. I want you to notice he's going to come right out of this portrayal of Jesus the Avenger into this amazing statement of God's love. Look at. Chapter 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them, according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Notice this phrase, this verse, begins and ends with a reference to God's steadfast love. It's as though Isaiah is saying, Here's what I'm amazed by. Here's what I'm going to put before you. The steadfast love of God. This phrase, steadfast love, is two words in English that translate one Hebrew word, the word chesed. And the reason it takes two words to try to do this word justice is because this is a kind of love that there is no equivalent for. Here's how the Jesus Storybook Bible translates it. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I love that. You read this with your kids. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of that story Bible, is trying to say, how do you communicate to a kid what God's love is? It's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's a love that's rooted in his commitment to his people. God's love is relentless. God's love is committed God is faithful even when his people are unfaithful he never gives up Isaiah wants us to see this aspect of God's love he wants to blow your mind with the reality that God's love is not just holy it is steadfast it is persistent it is relentless all of us love a good story right The reason most of us have movies that we enjoy or TV shows that sort of suck us in is because we enjoy the narrative, right? We're caught up in the storyline, the flow. For our family at this time of year, one of the traditions we practice is uh, that I read aloud to my kids Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. And we read the real version Not the modern version, the old Dickens version with all of Dickens' beautiful English prose. I've been reading this aloud to my kids since they were little, little, and they're always mesmerized by it. Do you know why? Because it's a great story, right? They can resonate with this Scrooge who's hard-hearted and miserly, and with these experiences he has with these spirits who show him, goodness in his life and show him the effects of his stinginess and then this change of heart that happens at the end that's a story that just sucks us up and compels us and that we enjoy this time of year because it's a great story listen that's what the bible is the bible is one coherent story and you have to see it as such in order to be moved by it and in order to understand and make sense of what it's doing what the Bible is doing is giving us one coherent narrative of God's steadfast love toward his people That's the big E on the I chart that's the main point is God's hesed God's covenant faithfulness to his people for his glory That's the story of the Bible The Bible is not a textbook The Bible is not a theological encyclopedia. It is a story. And when you begin to see it that way, then you begin to read it differently, right? So when you get through your Bible reading plan next year in February, and you get to Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers, and then you sort of bog down. Here's why you're bogging down. Because you don't see the grand narrative, right? You're like, I don't don't get how this chapter here connects to the story but when you begin to see this is all the story of God's steadfast love it begins to open up your vision of what it is the Bible's telling us and what Isaiah is going to do for the rest of chapter 63 is he's just going to rehearse that story okay Isaiah is a good biblical theologian he knows the story of God's people so notice what he's doing now is he's going to say I want to think about God's steadfast love throughout history look at chapter 63 verse 8 for he God said Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted up and carried them all the days of old. This is a reference to Exodus, the angel of his presence, being the one who came on the day of Passover to guide God's people and to exercise justice on the oppressors. God lifted them up and carried them. Verse 10, but they rebelled. Have you read your Old Testament lately? Part of the story, right? But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Why? Because His love is holy. Then He remembered the days of old of Moses and His people. Where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of His flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? It's talking about the Red Sea, the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. That's the promised land. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. All Isaiah is doing is he's just remembering redemptive history. He's saying, God, you did this for your people. Your faithfulness brought them out of slavery, delivered them into rest. I remember that you did that. That's proof that you love and are committed to your people. God's love is steadfast. Listen, isn't it true that you and I tend to doubt God's love for us? Like many of you, you can believe that God loves other people. Better people than you. More godly people than you. But you have a hard time believing that he loves you. Part of what Isaiah is showing us is the key is to get your eyes off of yourself and onto the story of God's relentless commitment to his people. If you're one of his people in Christ, here's how you know his love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. Read your Bible. God's love is steadfast. Finally, Isaiah wants us to see that God's love is personal. Personal. Look at this shift in verse 15. Now, Isaiah's been rehearsing the story of God's people. Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see. So now we're praying. Now he's talking directly to God. God. We're not talking about what God has done. Now he's talking directly to God. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Now listen. This may not shock you because we're familiar with the New Testament and we know that Jesus taught us to pray our Father who is in heaven. But listen to me, in the Old Testament, the idea of calling God Father is rare. Rare. God is not often referred to as Father in the Old Testament. And yet right here, Isaiah says, you are our Father. If Abraham forgets us, if Jacob forgets us, you won't forget us. Here's why, because you love us. God's love is Personal. And when you know the holy, steadfast, personal love of God, it changes how you relate to God and it changes how you pray. So I want you to notice what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, hey God, look and see. Oh yeah, that God that did stuff long ago, where are you now? This is not disrespectful. This is the prayer of one who knows God personally, who's crying out to God personally, who's passionate for God to work personally right now in my life and in my experience as he has in the past. All of Isaiah 64 is simply a lesson in how to pray. No, notice, notice chapter 64. Let's just, let's just learn how to pray from Isaiah, all right? Let's be done with all of our posturing and how to pray. And let's just, let's look at how Isaiah prays. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations might tremble at your presence. Do you see what he's asking for? God, rend the heavens and come down. God, I know about you, I know you're faithful, I know you're steadfast, but come, show up right now. Let us experience and know your presence. Verse three, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. He's reading his Bible again, saying, God, you've done this in the past. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Verse 6, we've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. I want you to notice two things. Number one, notice, that, notice Isaiah's honesty. He's not saying, oh God, we're great, we're good, we're really obedient people, so bless us. What he's saying is, God, we're unclean. Even our righteousness is like a polluted garment. Our iniquities take us away. God, we acknowledge that we have failed. This is public personal confession of sin. So what we do every morning during our or every Sunday morning during our worship when we confess our sin together. We're just doing what Isaiah does here. His, his personal relationship with God includes a confession of sin and acknowledgement of foolishness. And notice secondly that he's using us language. Isaiah is not an individualist that's saying, God bless me, God forgive my sin, God, here's what I've done. He's saying, here's what we've done, God. Here's how your people have just missed it. Here's how our sin is complicating our experience and our love for you. He's taking responsibility for a people. Verse 8 But now, O Lord, You are our Father. God, in spite of our sin, in spite of our folly, in spite of our foolishness, here's what we know. You're our Father, God. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Corm I want us to pray like this. I want us to engage with God in this way. God, rend the heavens and come down. God, we don't want to sit here another Sunday morning doing our thing apart from you being with us in a powerful way. God, would you show up? Would you manifest your glory? Would you help us know and experience your presence? Let's pray this way. Let's seek after God this way. How many of our prayers are really self-conscious speeches disguised as prayer. Where really what we're doing is working out our own insecurity or trying to impress one another with our religiosity. What if we just had the courage and boldness of our day? God, rend the heavens and come down. God, make your presence known like you have in the past. Do that again. If we would pray like that, and if God in His grace would answer those prayers, this church and this city would never be the same. God's love is holy. God's love is steadfast. God's love is personal. And here's where this is all going. Here's where Isaiah wants us to get. When we understand the holy, steadfast, personal love of God, that love changes us. That love changes us. Notice Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. This is God speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name, or perhaps did not call upon my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He's talking about his people. He's saying, hey, here I am. I'm ready to be sought, but you're not seeking. I'm ready to be found, but you're not chasing after me. I'm spreading out my hands all the day to a people who are rebellious. This is who who we are. This is who the love of God comes to. A people who, though he's pursuing us, though he's holding out his hands to us, a people who are stubborn and rebellious and not seeking him. So what's our hope? What hope is there for a people who are hardened toward the love of God? Do you know what our hope is? The love of God. Our hope is in God's never-ending, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever-love. That's our hope. Notice what God says in Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. You know what that means? I will make Christians even out of church people. That wasn't as funny to you guys as it was to the nine o'clock. I will bring forth from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. God's saying, listen, your hard-heartedness is not going to keep me from breaking into your life, transforming you, and making you my servants. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is even our dullness is not beyond the redeeming, transforming love of God. Verse 10, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. How do you know if you're one of God's people? You seek him. My people who have sought me. Do you see how that brings together divine sovereignty and human responsibility? God says, I'm gonna bring forth offspring for myself from Jacob. Here's how you know if you're that, seek me. My people seek me. So if you're here this morning and you're provoked to seek God, God's already at work. Contrast, verse 11, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. This is language of idolatry. I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer and when I spoke, you did not listen but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. There are always two kinds of people in the world. Those who receive God's love and those who resist God's love. Those who are humbled by God's love and those who are hardened to God's love. Isaiah says, here's what God is doing. Out of all the nations, out of all the peoples, He's calling for Himself a people. He's gathering for Himself a people whom He calls My servants, My people who have sought Me. That's what God's doing. His love goes out and changes people who have rebelled against Him, who have been far from Him, who have ignored Him, and changes them so that they become seekers of Him and worshipers of Him. Even if you look at the graphic on the screen, right? what's the title of this section of Isaiah? The final conqueror. That's the picture that Isaiah is putting before us in this closing section of his book. Jesus Christ as the final conqueror. So thinking about that image, there are really only two kinds of people. Those who are conquered by God's love, and those who are only conquered by His justice. See, here's the secret of history. God wins. God will conquer every evil. He will either conquer you with His love, or He will conquer you at the end of His time with His wrath. But He holds out to you this morning the promise of the Gospel and says, Seek me. I'm willing to be found by all who will seek me. My love is pursuing and chasing after even those who have to this point been far from me. What does someone who's been conquered by God's love look like? Looks like someone who's humble. It looks like someone who says to God, God, our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteous deeds before you, God, are like a filthy garment, and yet you are our Father. Rend the heavens and come down. God, we're unclean. We're unrighteous. We need to be changed. We need to be saved. We need to renew. Come and do your work in us. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a famous passage where Lucy asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan the lion is safe. Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Isaiah is saying to us, God is not safe, but he is good. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's humble ourselves before His immense love this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge with Isaiah this morning that in our sins we have been a long time. We've become like one who is unclean. Even our righteousness is like a polluted garment. That we acknowledge that we are a people who have sinned. And so we thank you for the greatness, the majesty, the beauty of your holy, steadfast, personal love. Thank you that you have always been faithful to your people. So Father, we pray that You might help us know and experience Your gracious love for us in Christ this morning. Father, for those who have not yet been changed by Your love, would You right now this morning send Your Spirit forth to renew their hearts and awaken them to Your love. For those who have grown cold and stale to Your love, would You right now this morning reawaken and rekindle their love in response to Your love for them. God, would You let us not leave here this morning unmoved, By your love. Would you help us worship this morning for the fact that your love is holy, that you are good, that you will bring about a world in which there is no evil. And Father, that our hope of participating in that world is to be cleansed of our own evil through the Lord Jesus Christ. So mercifully cleanse us this morning. Mercifully rend the heavens and come down that we might be changed. We pray this for our great joy, for your great glory in our world.